I think we all understand the pattern of Philippians chapter 2, where it talks about Jesus exalting him, uh, or humbling himself, I'm sorry, uh, humbling himself, and then God super exalting him to the highest place. But here's a question. Where did that transition take place? When was the shift from humiliation to exaltation? Most people would say, that. well, that's easy. That's at his resurrection. But I believe that's wrong. His exaltation began at his burial. The transition began the moment he died. Because if you think about it, at that moment, nothing dishonorable happens to Jesus. God immediately vindicates Jesus by tearing the curtain of the temple, and then the man in charge at the scene affirms that Jesus is indeed a righteous man and the Son of God. He's given an honorable burial, which is remarkable because the major component of crucifixion was to deprive a person of that. But the whole point of crucifixion was maximum degradation, and that didn't end at death. In that culture, if you really wanted to punish someone, you wouldn't just kill them. You would kill that person and then let their body be eaten by the dogs. You would do that. You wouldn't let him be buried uh, or if you did, it was in a very despised place like a garbage heap. But you see, that would be so that the descendants of that person would also feel that punishment, and that would go on for generations. So when the Romans crucified someone, they would just leave them hanging on the cross and let their friends and family see the body decompose, see the birds picking at the eyes of the person until the flesh was so rotten that it would fall to the ground and it would be food for scavengers and and, uh, full of maggots. Um, And they actually made it illegal to bury uh, crucifixion uh, victims without special permission. And in the vicinity of Jerusalem, leaving bodies on the cross could be uh, politically uh, volatile. So often they would just take, if they felt that this victim needs to be taken down, they would just throw them in a mass grave. Um, And yet as as determined as they were to inflict the worst possible punishment and humiliation on Jesus, he ends up with an honorable burial. And why? If the humiliation aspect was such an important part of Jesus' sacrifice, his sacrifice on the cross, why did this happen to Jesus? It almost happened to Jesus, but it didn't. And we'll see that in verse 42 of our text. Jesus is brought right to the brink of that fate. But things turned. And why? Because it was a fulfillment of Scripture. It was a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 9, where it says, And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. And it's also because Jesus said, It is finished. It was finished. 
the Father said, that's enough. The atonement has been done. And so the Father put a, an end to this dishonor. The judicial work of God was done. God is going to bury his son's body because he's going to raise his son's body. And at the heart of the gospel is the resurrection. The Apostle Paul said that this burial is so important. It is a critical part of the gospel. And we normally don't pay a whole lot of attention to the burial of Jesus. But if you look at how much space the gospel writers devote to this, we see that there's clues that give us the fact that this is very important. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul sums up the entire gospel in one sentence. If you would please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We will read what the Apostle Paul says. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 3 and 4. Here it says, For I deliver to you, first of all, that which is also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. I think you get the point. The Apostle Paul says that he was buried so that he could be raised again. And Mark is going to tell us this morning exactly what happened, but first he wants us to see the, uh, the people that were involved as witnesses. And he starts with the women that were there. So if you would please turn to our text, it's found in Mark chapter 15, and we'll be looking at verses 40 all the way to the end of verse 47. Mark chapter 15, starting with verse 40. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less and Joses, and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, come, coming and taking courage, went in to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead and summoned the centurion. He asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he bought fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in linen. And he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joses, observed where he was laid. Now, we know that Christ has died on the cross. And the next thing that needs to happen in the 
in this chronology is that he needs to be buried. And since Christ was executed for a trumped-up charge of treason, his body could be just taken out to the, to the city dump and burned or just left. But what did God do? We know that God is in the business of raising up just the right people at the right time to accomplish His will. The people He raises up, they're not people that you would expect. You would typically think that these would be His close disciples. That His disciples would come out of of hiding and bury Christ. I mean, it's amazing to think that they didn't. I mean, even those of you here, when our pet dies, we go and bury that pet. But they weren't there even for the burial of Jesus when he died. But that isn't who God used. God didn't use those disciples. God sovereignly used some women And then he sovereignly used Joseph of Arimathea to watch over and take care of the dead body of Jesus Christ. And by the way, among other things, this text shows us is that it is clear that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he died. He was really dead. These verses, as well as additional details in other Gospels, show us beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus died on that day. He didn't just merely pass out, as some contend, and then regain consciousness in the tomb. That's actually ridiculous when you read all of the Gospel accounts. It shows that he truly died. Now, look at the evidence here in verses 40 and 41. We might wonder why Mark gives us the name of these women and even the details about these women. One of the reasons is because if you were an eyewitness of Jesus' death, there would be others who would try to find you and ask you about the death and resurrection. So Mark is seeking to persuade his readers of the truth of who Jesus is and what he did. And of course... These are some pretty amazing things that Mark is writing about. These aren't your normal people that you would expect to hear about. So Mark knew that when this document was read in various places, there would be people who would question it. And that's why he's very careful to identify several eyewitnesses. And he identifies them specifically so that people could go out and find them and ask, did this really happen? Is this really the way it went down? And so looking at verse 40 of our text, we see some of those who played a part in the burial of Jesus. There we read, there were also women looking on from afar, among who were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less, and Joses and Salome. Now, if we remember, Jesus had been abandoned by all of his disciples. He was mocked, beaten, and crucified. He hung on the cross, and none of his disciples were anywhere to be found. But in the shadows of all of this were some faithful, loyal women, and those women 
are forever remembered because of their love, their loyalty, their ministry to Jesus Christ. Even though there was no limelight or glamour in this, they did it. But there is eternal glory. Notice, it isn't the men who are remembered here, it's the women. And we saw in Mark 14.50 that all the men had deserted Christ. Peter had followed at a distance for a while. But then he cursed Christ and denied him three times. And he fled. And we saw that in, in chapter 14 in verses 66 through 72. But these women, although scared, they didn't run away. They were there because they cared, because they wanted to serve in any way that they could now that Jesus was dead. And so it says at the start of verse 40 that there were women who were also looking on from afar. And that, that word uh, uh, from a distance or from afar is the Greek word makrathon. It's an interesting word because we've seen that word before. Chapter 14, verse 54, it says that Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. Same word. It means that they would be close enough to the action to be an eyewitness to everything that was going on, but far enough away not to be directly involved. This was fulfillment of prophecy. Found, guess where? Psalm 38, verse 11, where it says, My friends and companions avoid me because of my wounds. My neighbors stand off at a distance. Now the second half of verse 40 gives us the names of the women who followed at a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the less, and Joses and Salome. Mark mentions their names three times, once at the crucifixion, again at the burial, and again at the empty tomb. They were witnesses to these three events that God wants us to have absolute rock-solid proof that these happened. They didn't have the courage to be at Jesus' side but at least they came close enough to see what was happening. And without these women, we wouldn't have the eyewitness record of the crucifixion and burial and then the angel at the empty tomb. For most of what Jesus said and did, the gospel writers weren't really interested in providing proof. They were more, more focused on the meaning of his actions. But when it came to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, there's a huge focus on historical proof. One example of this, uh, the details that Mark gives us, is about these women. It, it's important to publish their names. It's important to know and verify that they saw this firsthand. And that's why Mark gives us all of this information. They we need to know that they carried, cared a lot about Jesus. So they're not just the casual observer. They're not these ladies who just walked past and said, oh, look what's going on. No, these, 
these women actually cared and they were paying close attention because of that. And this was all to establish proof of death. So not only do we have these witnesses, we'll read in a moment how God created a situation where Pilate has conducted an investigation into the death. God knew that people would come along with their theories about how Jesus really didn't die and that he just passed out on the cross and maybe just closed his eyes and later he just got up and walked away. But that's ruled out by the testimony of the centurion. In verse 45, one thing that we need to understand about a centurion, centurions were trained killing machines. Few humans belong, uh, human beings in history have been more proficient at killing than a Roman centurion. And these were sharp guys. They weren't idiots. They didn't just think someone was dead because they closed their eyes. Now, the Muslim religion is another example of where they just go, oh, yeah, Jesus actually survived. uh, And and even if he did die, there was a body, body double. Well, God knew that these things would come up. And so he wanted proof by having these witnesses the proof of death, the proof of burial, the proof of resurrection. And so the first woman that we see here is, is Mary Magdalene. And on, uh, in Luke 8.2, we read that this is the woman that Jesus drove seven demons out of her. And she became a very important disciple. She was from Galilee, actually from the town of Magdala, which is located on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, close to Capernaum. But, you know, I, I have to mention that there's a popular tradition that someone somehow came up with the idea that she was a prostitute. There's nothing in Scripture or in history that supports that idea. But I'll tell you what, all four gospel writers mention her as a chief witness to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Now, another thing is that heretical book, The Da Vinci Code, it claims that she was Jesus' wife or lust partner. Folks, that's a lie from hell. Mary Magdalene is a highly honored, and privileged woman. She is always listed first in the women, and she was actually the first one to see Jesus alive after his resurrection. The next Mary that we see, it says the Mary, uh, Mary the mother of James the less and Joses. That's more likely, more than likely Jesus' mother. Since Mark made a point earlier of telling Jesus' brother, telling us that Jesus' brothers were named James and Joses. Now, James the less, that could refer to a stature, stature or his age. The, the Greek word there is mikros. It's actually where we get the word micro. And it means small in stature or less by birth or less by rank. 
And it's possible that James the Lesser, some translations say James the Younger, is meant to differentiate him from James the son of uh, Zebedee and his brother John, whose mother's name is Salome. But anyway, James the Younger was one of the apostles and the writer of the epistle of James. And that would be quite a coincidence if one of the witnesses of Jesus's burial had the same name as Jesus's mother and had two sons with the names of Jesus's brothers. We read all about Jesus's family in Mark 3, 31 and 35. So the point here is that this woman really knew Jesus. Being the mother of Christ, she wouldn't have been fooled by a body double. She wouldn't have been fooled by this being someone else. Then we have a third woman who's mentioned. Her name is Salome. That's the sister of Jesus's mother, Mary. Also, she was the mother of the apostles John and James. Her husband was Zebedee. And in verse 41, it says that they were the women who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee. And many other women came up with him to Jerusalem. Now, it says that they came and ministered to him. The the Greek word that is used there is the, the word diakoneo, and it's the word that we we have for deacon or servant. So how did they do this? They weren't apostles. They weren't preachers. They weren't deacons, but they were servants. They opened their home to Jesus. They prepared meals for Jesus and all of the people that were with Jesus. They provided money. Uh, That's because some of them were actually fairly wealthy. And later in Acts, it says that they opened their homes for worship within the early church. And so the church has a rich legacy of, of women working behind the scenes. And I, as I was studying, I, I read a story about a woman who came into a church and she said, you know, I, I really desire to be a leader within this church. And she brought a, quite a, uh, an impressive resume of all the things that she had been involved with in the past. And the, the pastor, you know, uh, she went to the pastor and said she wanted uh, him to know that she was willing to serve, that she wanted to be a leader. And the pastor said, you know, I, I praise God that you uh, want to do that. That's great. Um, we were so thankful that he had led you here. And we want you to be a leader. Well, the next Sunday, we would like you to come early and make some coffee. And she goes, come on, you you didn't get what I just said. You must not have heard. I want to be a leader. The pastor said, oh, I heard you all right, but apparently you don't understand what being a leader in this church is. 
If you're not willing to serve, you're not qualified to lead. I couldn't agree more. And so I want to let you know that if you're a woman here this morning, these are things that should encourage you that these women are used as witnesses. They give credible testimony to what we hold so valuable. They had roles that are obviously different than the apostles. And, you know, the church is very clear on the roles of men in the church. But our society is telling us that if we don't have women doing the same roles as men, that you're worthless. That is horrible. That is absolutely horrible because everyone has different roles. And I'll tell you, we see how there's the degradation of women. Women have been given the godly honor of bringing every single person into this world through childbirth. And look what's happening. They're looking to get rid of their children. They're more than willing to kill them. And even you sit there and go, how can you have a woman carry a child up to the ninth month and then decide to get rid of it? That is just to end up shaking your fist at God. What a horrible thing. So here you have these women who served in gentleness and humility and meekness while submitting to their own husbands. They also serve Christ and they serve the apostles. And that's you see that all throughout the early church and even into our day. These women followed Jesus from Galilee and Mark says all the way up to Jerusalem until the end. These women are very important. They were critical to this whole event. And I think it's it's interesting when you have a special event. Yeah, sure, some of us guys, we, we try to get it all together and everything, but it's really the, the faithful women who are able to organize it and to make the food and to serve the food and, and then actually much of the time clean up afterwards. And there's, it just doesn't seem to be a whole lot of honor in that. But there is. There's great honor in that. And I'm sure that these women, they're going, we've done all of this stuff for Jesus Christ. And so now they want to do something for Christ's body. But they weren't in a position to do anything. They, they weren't in a position to be able to take care of or, or even ask for the body of Christ. But you know what? God is sovereign. And God has a sovereign plan. And sometimes we reach the end of ourselves. We go, how in the world is this going to take place? There is no way that this could possibly happen. And then we remember we can always count on God making it happen exactly the way He says it will. And so in verse 42 of our text, it says, Now when evening had come, 
because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. And so now Christ died at, a, at the third, at about three o'clock in the afternoon, which in the, uh, the way that they looked at time, that was the ninth hour of the day. And we see that in Mark 15.33. There's an interesting thing that happens here that if, if you were to look at Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, it tells us what should happen, especially uh, on if the next day was the Sabbath or the Passover, the high holy day. So I invite you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. Deuteronomy chapter 21. And you'll see how there's this struggle between Jewish custom and the Romans. Here it says, and starting with verse 22, if a man has committed a sin deserving of death and he is put to death, you shall, uh, uh, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is given you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. Now, we need to remember that this is a Gentile execution. Jewish laws didn't have anything, uh, didn't mean anything to the Romans. And so that body, as I said, might rot. It might just sit there. The Romans could have cared less about the corpse. As a matter of fact, as I said, the the, the purpose of crucifixion crucifixion was to humiliate, torture, and kill criminals in clear public view. And so the Romans would have left this uh, person on the cross. So it's unlikely that criminals were really very, very seldom taken down from the cross because it would have to be a request to the family member in order to do that. And if the Romans let them do that, that really defeated the whole purpose of crucifixion. They would leave the criminals on the cross. And so their bodies would, would hang there. Here's another thing. The crucified criminals, their bodies were considered Roman property. Now the record of Joseph of Arimathea seeking audience with Pilate to ask for Jesus' body also supports the, na the notion that the bodies of the criminals were considered Roman property. He couldn't just walk up and take it off the cross. And so what we see here is Mark is very careful to point out that the day before the Sabbath and of the Passover was known as the preparation day. No one was, no work was to be done on the Sabbath, so everything had to be done before sundown, including the burial of Jesus' body. Now, uh, Jesus hadn't met with a funeral director to, to pre-plan a burial. But here's the, 
the incredible thing in the providence of God 700 years before this moment. Isaiah predicted that the Messiah would be a uh, be with a rich man in his death. And so that goes uh, against this ever coming to pass because how in the world was this going to happen when that body belonged to the Romans? But let's read verse 43 and find out. It says, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, who was himself waiting for the kingdom, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked him for the body of Jesus. There was this man. He was known, of, known as Joseph of Arimathea. He was a prominent religious leader of the councilor Sanhedrin. And he boldly and courageously went to ask if he could have this body, body of Christ. Now, that word prominent is, is the, the Greek word eusgemon, and it means a, a, a person of good standing, of, of uh, wealth, who is influ- influential and respectable. He would have been able to ask for the Lord's body without anyone questioning that. Now, I want to point out that some people assume that God has a bias for the poor. That's not really true. Each person stands before God as an individual, not as a member of a class. Your categories are not defining you. What defines you is your heart. You are either saved or unsaved. You are either a person who is a Christian or a Gentile. Right now, in this day and age, we have to resist every trace of this woke idea that it's all about who you are as a race, as, a, as either being rich or poor, man or woman, those are starting to come into the church, into our culture, and it's just a blatant injustice because God saves all kinds of people. It's not just the rich. It's not just the poor. He desires to save all. Rich, poor, Greek, Jew, slave or free, he's going to save whom he desires to save. Now, it says that this man's name was Joseph of Arimathea. Arimathea, the exact location is is debated. The logical place that this would have been is uh, Ramathiam Zoem, which is the birthplace of Samuel. It's uh, located about 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem, east of Joppa. Now, I want to go back. Last week, I, I paid extra attention to the centurion. And as I continued to study, I'd like to just go back to verse 39 
So if we read verse 39 again of Mark 15, it says, So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that, he cried out like this and breathed his last. He said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. I'm going to get a little bit technical for a moment because I want you to understand in the ancient Greek language, a definite predicate nominative omits the article when it precedes the verb. And that's exactly what we see here in verse 39. We don't need the definite article. It's understood. This man was affirming that Jesus was the Son of God, a man who was a pagan, who was familiar with the fact that the Romans deified their rulers. And when they deified their rulers, they would say the emperor was as a, as a son of God. But he didn't say Jesus is a son of God. He says Jesus is the son of God. Affirm, affirming as a Gentile that the king of the Jews is le- legitimately God's Son. Remember, Mark's audience is Roman. And what do you think Mark is trying to communicate by bringing out this confession? He's trying to tell them, look, God came to save not just Jews, but also Gentiles. Because he saved me. This centurion is... Tradition says that his name was uh, Longinus and that he traveled overseas with, guess who? Joseph of Arimathea. He's a Joseph of Arimathea. He's a prominent member of the Sanhedrin and he's traveling around with a, a, a Roman Gentile. But as we continue with verse 43, it says, Joseph went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus Christ. This was an incredibly bold move. For one thing, Pilate could have become angry and actually taken out his wrath on Joseph. But also the Sanhedrin that had just condemned Christ would view Joseph as a traitor. But regardless of the threats, Joseph was courageous, and he went to Pilate and asked for the body. Luke tells us that he was a righteous and just man. You aren't righteous and just on your own merits. You are righteous and just in Jesus Christ alone. And he didn't consent to everything that was happening. In John's Gospel, we find out why. The Apostle John brings out the fact that Joseph was a secret believer and a disciple of Christ at that time. If you please turn to John chapter 19 and verse verse 38. John chapter 19, 
starting with verse 38. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Christ, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. You see, he was very afraid of the the leading Jews. So apparently he kept quiet about his faith during the time that Christ was alive and even during the time of his crucifixion. But now that he was dead, he had enough of being quiet. And so he went and he asked for Christ's body. You see, Joseph had seen Jesus die. And I'm sure he had all these questions about how can this kingdom come? Now, how can it come to Israel now that that Jesus is dead? How can Jesus' mission be fulfilled? How can people be helped and saved from their sins? He must have been somewhat perplexed. But he knew in his own heart that he had been changed and that he had turned away from sin and unto righteousness. Now he felt he had to do something. He had to do something to Jesus that would put his whole life and reputation in great danger. He could no longer be a secret disciple. He would go to Pilate and ask for the body of Christ. And yes, he would continue to wait for the kingdom. But while he waited, he did what he felt God would have him do and take down our Lord's body from that cross and then place him in a new tomb. Folks, he could have run away. He could have turned away. He could have just looked after his own interests, but he didn't. Instead, he thought of Christ. He thought of what he could do in relationship to Christ. And that shows his his faith. And so according to verses 44 and 45, Pilate marveled that he was already dead and summoned the centurion, Longinus, and asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out that from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. You see, Joseph asked for the body of Jesus. But Pilate was going, uh, uh, he's dead? I better ask the centurion, the one who's in charge of this. And that shows you how much confidence that Pilate had in the centurion. Because normally crucifixion could take days. But here it says that Pilate marveled. That that word used there is thumazo. And it means to wonder with absolute amazement and bewilderment. So you you just you just go, 
how did this happen? How did he end up dying so fast? I had you turn here last week. I'm going to have you turn here again. John chapter 10, verses 18 and 19. John chapter 10. This is how this happened. Starting with verse 18. Therefore my Father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it uh, take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it again. This commandment I have received from my Father. Do you know why he was dead so fast? It was finished. Done. Gave Gave it over. See, when you sit there, some people go, well, you know, the centurion, maybe he didn't know. Back about 200 years ago, there's this theory that said Jesus really didn't die on the cross. He fell unconscious. And this theory is called the swoon theory. Those who hold this position suggest that this death of Christ was just misdiagnosed, that Jesus really wasn't uh, dead, that he was taken off the cross at a near-death state, and somehow he was revived, and then he was maybe put in the tomb, but he was able to push this, this, uh, this rock away. And some of the biggest promoters of this theory are the Muslims. They say... He apparently wasn't dead. He just appeared to be dead. But again, we have a problem. Pilate is asking a trained centurion whether or not Jesus was actually really dead, and his answer was yes. This centurion had witnessed dead people over the course of his military career, probably hundreds if not thousands, he was trained to know whether or not someone was dead, and he knew that Jesus was dead. But he also knew, because in the Gospel of John, it tells us that they pierced Jesus' side. They were going to break his legs in order to quicken his death, but they found out that they didn't need to. They broke the legs of the other two, but when they came to Jesus, he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs, which was also fulfillment of Scripture. But what happened? One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and out came blood and water. That's further evidence that Jesus was really dead. It's also evidence that he was fully human, that he had a, a human body. And this is important so that we understand the full wonder of resurrection. This was not resuscitation. This was resurrection. Dead man being made alive. And so, here's another point. It says that Pilate granted the body the Greek word is doraomai. 
and it's a rare word, that means Pilate gave Jesus' body to Joseph as a gift. Not as a gift as, hey, you know, hey, that's great, but it meant that he bestowed something upon him. He didn't demand payment, no money, no bribe. He gave him as, as a, a gift, a gift you don't pay for. And so what happened in verse 46? It says, Then he bought fine linen, took him down and wrapped him in the linen, and he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. Here's something interesting. In John's Gospel, John 19, Jesus, or John tells us that Nicodemus joined Joseph in taking down the body. In John 19.39, it says, Joseph also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. This was quite expensive. And so now we don't just have Joseph of Arimathea, who is a member of the Sanhedrin. We now have Nicodemus, another prominent wealthy member of the Sanhedrin, both boldly and publicly coming to identify with Christ. You remember Nicodemus? Nicodemus is the man that we see in John 3. And what did he do? At that time, he came at night. He snuck out to speak with Jesus. He knew there was something real about him, but he comes at night. And what happened? Jesus blew his mind. Actually, blew past his mind. Because Nicodemus says, what's all this teaching? Jesus says, Nicodemus, if you want to see the kingdom of God, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born from above. You must be born again. There's got to be new birth. And remember, Nicodemus couldn't quite grasp that. But the Holy Spirit worked on him. This Holy Spirit gave him new birth. The Holy Spirit regenerated his heart. And so what Nicodemus is doing now, along with with Joseph of Arimathea, they come and they say, we want to take care of this precious one's body. These men have been born again. They've been changed. They have become true followers of Christ. They were called... And I'm convinced they were effectively converted. Now they show evidence of that by coming and asking for the body, asking if they could take his body down off the cross, and then by anointing him and wrapping his body with linens. The Bible says hundreds of pounds of spices that showed honor and dignity as they lay Christ in this new tomb. They were making a public profession. We profess our faith in Christ. And I think that's similar to what we do. I think it's absolutely unthinkable for someone to think that they don't need to publicly profess Christ. 
the ordinance of baptism. That hadn't been established at the time that this was written as in the church. But you know what? Matthew 28, 18. Jesus has risen from the grave. He's meeting with his followers. And before he ascends back into glory, he says, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go everywhere and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is a profession of faith. That's the first step of obedience for anyone who comes to faith in Christ. God has ordained this, this side of the cross. And that shows people that you're coming forth, that you have changed life and changed heart. And the thing that we have to remember, it's not just a changed life. Everyone goes, oh, come to Jesus, he'll change your life. No, folks, we don't need a change of life. We need a change of heart. A change of life can just be to where we have behavioral modification. That's not what we need. To act moral is not going to get you into heaven. The only thing, you will not see the, uh, the uh, entrance into heaven unless you are born again. You must be born again. And the thing that shows that that has happened to us, that we have a changed heart, is that now we love our Savior. We want to serve our Savior. And the Bible actually says in Acts 2.41, as Peter began to preach to the church, it says, then those who gladly received his word, and that means they they believed and were saved, were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Folks, there is a a parallel connection between Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus' profession of faith and the New Testament ordinance of baptism. Both are public. No one, no question about Joseph and, and Nicodemus. They came out in front of everyone. Now they don't care. You just can't fathom what it meant in that Jewish culture for these men of prominence to come and ask to take a dead corpse off the tree of execution. Something they did that was so radical, they were saying, we identify with Christ. And that's actually what our baptism does. It's an identification with Jesus Christ, showing a changed heart, a heart that's been regenerated, a spirit that is made alive. And so that means that you've come to repentance toward God and faith in Christ. And both of these men did that. So what these men are basically saying is, We're done with our old lives. I don't know what happened to these men. Historical records don't tell. Doesn't matter. Because they're saying, I don't care about the Sanhedrin anymore. 
It doesn't matter about our, our prominence within the Jewish culture. It doesn't matter what our fellow men think about us. We're willing to put our very lives on the line by identifying with Jesus Christ. Everyone who comes forward is saying that same thing. I'm making a new family. I'm joining and identifying with the church, which is Christ, Christ's bride. It's his body. And it doesn't mean that you leave your other family or your other organizations. It means that in your heart, I have new priorities. And this is the centerpiece of who I am. I am all about God's church and God's purpose. And we want to do it God's way. Something for sure happened to Joseph and Nicodemus after Calvary. If you can look on the Savior on the cross and refuse to identify with him in the New Testament, You've missed it. You've missed it. And let me tell you, Scripture tells us in Matthew 10, 32 and 33, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. It's amazing. There's no way that we would do that beforehand. Oh, we'll identify with a lot of stuff. We'll identify with a baseball team, a politician. We put bumper stickers all over our cars. And all of that is just silly world stuff. But to say, I'm a Christian and I stand on the Word of God. will actually make you a target of the world. So I'm getting off here a little bit. Back to verse 46. It tells us that they wrapped Jesus' body and laid it in a tomb hewn out of rock. Matthew 27.6 says Joseph's tomb was a new tomb. Luke points out in chapter 23, verse 55, or 53 of his gospel, that no one had ever been buried in this tomb. John 19.42 adds that this tomb was located near the place of crucifixion. So Joseph had obviously purchased this for he and his family, but he decides to give it as a gift to Christ. This quiet disciple is quiet no more. You know, there are a lot of people. It's okay to be quiet within the body, within the church, not wanting to be in the limelight, but when you are to where you can give a profession of faith within this world, you need to speak out. It's hard, folks. It is. But we need to, if we love the Word of God, we love our, our Lord, our Savior, We'll do that, and we'll know that God will be with us as we do.
And so finally in verse 47, it says, And Mary Magdalene and, and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. These women, it's likely they don't want to let Jesus out of their sight. They witnessed the death and now the burial. It was their greatest spiritual affection that shows as they are watching this. And that's what led them to the tomb early that that next morning. Even though Christ's cause seems to have come to an end, these women will continue to follow. They continue to honor their Lord and make his grave even a pleasant place. I love what Jonathan Edwards says. He says, true religion is great part, in great part, consists in religious affections. That religion which God requires and will accept does not consist in weak, dull, and lifeless, lifeless wishes, raising us but a little above the state of indifference. God and his word greatly insists upon it that we would be in good earnest, fervent in spirit, and our hearts vigorously engaged in religion. End quote. This is what it means to have religious affection. Will you show your affection to Christ? Will you minister to those who are dead in their trespasses and sins? Will you go out to even the people that you don't think will come to Christ? Either they're too poor or too rich? Oh, they would never. First of all, let me ask you, will you remember the grace that He has given you and saved you of your sin? Will you remember His sufferings for your sake? I'd like to close by having us turn to an Old Testament book you don't hear much of, Song of Solomon. It's the book just before Isaiah. Song of Solomon, chapter 8. Verses 6 and 7. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth and for your word. It's so crystal clear to us that we must believe 
in this bloody gospel. We must believe in a gospel that, although never separates the first person of the Trinity from the second, nevertheless, there's a separation of communion as it pertains to the human nature of Christ in which he absorbed all the fury of hell in our place. And we are so grateful for that. We know that we are undeserving of so rich a salvation. But we do praise you that that salvation is ours. We thank you that Christ is ours. We thank you, as we'll see in the next couple of weeks, because of his resurrection, we have blessed hope. The blessed hope of his return. The consummation of all things. The complete and total reverse of the curse. And an eternity in the future. Lord, we thank you so much for these realities. I pray that you would seal these truths to our hearts. We pray this in the most precious and glorious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.